So this week, we are concluding our three-part sort of mini-series, three-part study of conversions. And so again, as a reminder, we are reading these accounts of how and why people turned from the direction they were going in to believe in Jesus. There was a turnaround, there was a change of direction. Or we are reading about how God-fearing people found Jesus as they were seeking truth. They were seeking truth and now here they find out that Jesus is the truth. Or we're reading about someone who had partial knowledge of a true and living God and then that was enhanced by a full understanding, a full knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus as Messiah. Conversion is not about a one-time public proclamation of believing in Jesus. As important as that is, it is about realization, repentance, and reconciliation that's followed by continuous change, continuous growth. It is about becoming and then maturing as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So it applies for all of us. So we've considered that conversions take place through a variety of ways, through a variety of methods and a variety of circumstances and a variety of people, and that conversions are possible only by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that conversions stem, they are coming from, they have to be coming from sacrificial love. If we're not loving, we can't talk to anybody about Jesus. And conversions are by the revelation of the word of God. You know, we talk to people and tell them about something that will change their lives, not based on our own thinking, not based on what somebody else is telling us, but based on the word of God. It's by the revelation of the word of God. All right? So this week, we're considering just one main point, just one point about conversions based on Acts 17, 16 through 34. So we'll read the passage, and I'll make some comments about the background, what's behind the text as we're going through Acts 17, 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So pay, pay attention, or... Note, this is one type of audience and one type of method that he's using. Jews and God-fearing Greeks or Gentiles. So they already have some awareness of God, but they don't know Jesus. So one type of audience, one method. So he's reasoning with them in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So this is another type of audience. These are not... Jews or God-fearing Gentiles, these are just people going about their normal everyday life in the marketplace, believing in the Athenian gods and living their lives according to what they think, right? And so this is street evangelism, as we've talked about even before. So he's speaking in the synagogue and in the marketplace. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was actually a hill, a rock outcropping that was northwest, that was just a little bit northwest of the famous Acropolis. And you know, if you've heard of the Acropolis, that was where the Parthenon was, the Greek Parthenon. Still, ruins of it are still there today. And the, the Acropolis and the Parthenon, the Parthenon was the Temple of Athena. And if you're in Nashville, Tennessee, you can see the replica of the Parthenon, right? And life-size replica of the Parthenon. Quite an interesting fact. Um, but the Areopagus, this hill, that, that term was also used to refer to the governmental council, to the administrative body, and the judicial court of the city, which all held their meetings upon this hill. So when it says that Paul is now speaking to the Areopagus, that's who he's speaking to, right? So here it says that they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. He spoke to the Jews and God-fearing Greeks and Gentiles. He spoke in the marketplace, and now he's speaking to these leaders, to these intellects. Third type of audience, different method. And he says to them, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, the boundaries of their dwellings. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, what Paul is referring to there is a Stoic philosopher named Aratus who wrote this particular phrase. So Paul is aware of all of that, and that's what he's telling them. Your own poets have told you this, right? Therefore, verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. 
He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul is interacting here in Athens with people who do not know Yahweh. They do not know the God of the children of Israel. They don't understand that. They haven't heard about that. Then they don't know about Jesus. They may have heard a reference to Jesus, but they don't know about Jesus. They have their own gods, their own beliefs, and their own religious practices. And Paul is greatly distressed. That phrase is that he's quite troubled. Right? When he's walking through the city, he's looking at things, he's examining, he's trying to understand the context that they're in, and it says that he's greatly distressed that there is idol worship going on. But, in spite of this strong emotion that he feels, Paul does a masterful job of presenting the truth to the people. And here's the guiding principle for Paul, and really the guiding principle for us, the lesson for us. Conversions come from connecting with people. Last week, when we were talking about you know, being able to connect with people or conversions stem from sacrificial love, uh, we saw that with, to love people, we are called to love people and to desire to see them saved for their sakes. It's not for our sakes. It's not so that we can say, oh, I spoke to this person, I converted this. It's not, it's not any of that. This is that we would sincerely, completely, sacrificially love them, and as Paul and Moses and Jesus did, that we would be able to say, even if it was at the cost of my salvation. That's what Paul says, right? Again, like I said last week, we're not called to do that. Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice. We're not called to do anything on someone else's behalf for their salvation. But the sentiment, the, the, the desire, the love that motivates us is I want to so desperately see this person saved that when I speak to them about Jesus, my focus is not on what I say and so that they may be converted. My focus is on what Jesus is saying to them and that they would be saved. There's this love that is coming out of us and is expressing in the way that we would deal with people. So we are doing it all for their sake. And we saw that a heart of compassion and care will be heard long before our words are heard. Right? And if you don't know how to hear the heart, I, I, actually I shouldn't say that. I know all of you know how to hear the heart. You can hear the heart long before you hear the words. You know what that means, right? So you know that people will hear your heart long before you say to them, this is the way, and this is what you must do. They'll hear you, your heart first. And so here, all those points that we talked about in, the, in, the, in these you know, preceding two weeks are closely related to this point that we have to connect with people where they are at. Paul doesn't start by telling the people why idol worship is wrong. He doesn't start with that. That was what was greatly distressing him. That's what's, you know, the emotion in him. But he doesn't start there. 
he exercises restraint and respect. And if you notice, he starts out by observing that they must be deeply religious. He says, I, I know, I see, I'm aware that you are deeply religious. He appeals to their interest and in their expression of what they know about God. So whatever they think is possible or whatever they think God is or whatever interest they have, that's what Paul is appealing to. Right? He says, I see that you're very religious. And then he's pointing to this altar to the unknown God. The Athenians had an altar to an unknown God just to be safe. It was an insurance policy. They had all these other gods who were there to, they were trying to appease and they said, well, there may be another God that we don't know about. So we better have an altar here to an unknown God just to be safe. Just to be, you know, just, so that if that God shows up, we can say, oh, we, we have an altar for you too, right? That's what they're doing. They're trying to do, you know, they're, they're trying to earn and keep their salvation. They're saying, if only we do these things, we'll be okay. We can appease all these gods that we know about, and we'll appease this God that we don't know about. But you notice what Paul does. You know, he, he doesn't attack them. He doesn't say, what do you mean, an altar to an unknown God? He's, he goes after them, or goes to them, and you notice this next statement that he's using, or how he speaks to them. You know, he is introducing the true and living God by describing that this unknown God that they are somewhat aware of, but not fully, that this unknown God that he's now going to tell them about is the supreme creator and Lord of heaven and earth. This kind of a sovereign God would be worthy of the Athenians' allegiance. You see? Meaning, if they have a whole pantheon of gods, and you come along and say, hey, well, we have this one God who is you know, responsible for... I don't know, think of something minor, you know, uh, the roads being clean, I don't know. Uh, so they would say, oh, unimportant, we don't really care about that God. But if you say, let me tell you about a God who is the supreme creator, who actually made all of these things that you're seeing, who made you. Oh, now you pay attention, you say, oh, that, that's a God that I want to know about, and that's a God that I want to appease. Do you see? I mean, he's telling them, he introduces this and gets their attention because now he's saying, look, I'm telling you about a God. He's not a lesser God. He's not one of the, the lower gods. This is the supreme God. He is sovereign. And this God wouldn't need to be appeased by dwelling in temples made by human hands because guess what? He made humans. So you see how he's building this up? He's explaining to them, he's pointing them, he's, he's doing this in such a way that they say, oh, okay, all right, you're telling us about this God that makes, made me, all right. Then Paul transitions to the plan and purpose of God for humanity. He says, this creator God made all the nations, the ethnos, the 
people groups, the ethnic groups. He made all those from one man. And see, he's not, you, you notice here, he's not going through the whole story of creation. He doesn't describe about Adam and, you know, he doesn't say all. He just gives them what they would relate to, right? And he says, this creator God made all the nations, ethnos, people, groups of the world from one man, and this God has appointed the times and the dwellings of every person. Now, again, that will get your attention. Because when you're going about your daily life, what do you care about in terms of where you are? You care about the boundaries of your dwelling and the preservation of your home and the, you know, the running of your car and the, you know, the, you know, the times of your life and whether your child is doing this or not. And you're concerned about those kinds of things that, that are going on. And so Paul says, hey, this God actually appointed the times of your life and where you will live even. The fact that you're here in Athens, the fact that you're here right now in this particular physical location, this God appointed that. People pay attention. They're listening. They, they, they want to hear more about this God. And then he says, this God who has done this wants to reach out to you and wants you to reach out to him. He wants you to search for him, to find him. He's not far from you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And he says, it is in this God that we can live and move and have our being. Oh, this, this sounds more and more interesting, doesn't it? I mean, this is everyday life. This is practical. This is getting to where I am. Then Paul gets to his climax in verses 29 through 31. He says, therefore, and mind you, he has just set up that your own, your own poets, your own people have told you that we are God's offspring. I'm telling you about this God whose offspring we are. Therefore, since we are God's offering, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. What is he saying? We shouldn't be worshiping idols. Did he start with that? No, he didn't. But he got to it. He got right to that point. But he did it in such a precise way. He said, look, here, let me tell you about this unknown God. Let me tell you about what this God has done. Let me tell you how he operates, how he cares for us, with the desire that he has for us. And guess what? He who made us, he who made these human hands, doesn't have to be worshipped through something that these hands would make. I mean, clearly, he wouldn't be in that, because he made our hands. And he builds to that point and makes his statement. His distress is now expressed without any kind of negativity. Right? Here it is. This God doesn't need to be worshipped with idols that we would make with our hands. And then he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. For a group of people, who are trying to appease gods, wouldn't it be comforting to know that God is not out to get you? 
I've come to tell you about the true and living God that you have not been believed, believing in. And if you don't accept my word right now, God's going to strike you down with thunder and lightning and burn you right where you sit. That tends to be, or has been, some of the way in which we have spoken to people who don't believe. But what if we said to them, hey, you didn't know. And God, in his mercy, with all of his justice, has overlooked that ignorance so that he may now bring you to himself. So that he may now have this opportunity to say, this is the unknown God that you didn't, that you had no idea about. And you notice how Paul is setting up and coming to this and driving for this conclusion. And then he says, and therefore, because of this, because you're God's offspring, because you don't worship him with something that you make, because God overlooks all these ignorant acts of the past or ignorance of the past, guess what? Now he wants everybody to repent. Now that you're coming to know about this God, he wants you to repent. He wants you to turn. He wants you to be transformed. You see how he got there? And then he's saying, look, when that happens, when you are transformed, when you are repenting, when you are converted, you no longer have to face judgment, wrath, separation from God. You don't have to face that. You can now be in eternal life with this God. Wow. I mean, think about what the appeal is, the, the messages. And remember, this is coming with love undergirding it. There's not, a, there's, not, there's not the method where I can say to you, okay, now memorize these things, right? Learn these steps. The next person that you meet that doesn't believe in God, go through this step. You don't have the checklist in your mind or have it written on the palm of your hand. And then, oh, step one, okay. You know, this is not the point. This is not just to learn a method or something of that kind. This is to say, Lord, how do I, with that love of God that is undergirding everything. Speak with such wisdom. Speak with such move of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that it gets to the people. Now, at the end of all of that, how many believed? I mean, we read through all of this. I'm telling you all this, and I'm pointing out what Paul did, and you would say, thousands must have believed, right? It says, very few. Very few. But it does mention the leader of, or one of the leaders of the Areopagus, it does mention these prominent women. It does mention some of these people by name. And I tell you that we are sitting here today because it doesn't matter whether it's one or ten or ten thousand. God works and he knows where he needs to move. And he knows that the methods that we use may reach only one person at that time. And that is sufficient. Our goal is not to say the entire Areopagus believed. Our goal is to say we were faithful to the Lord to do what he asked us to do. And one person believed. Great, wonderful. Praise the Lord. And then, as you look at all of this, you, know, you just say, what a fantastic logical, nicely laid out, right? 
Holy Spirit inspired, progressive presentation of biblical truth without directly quoting the Old Testament or referring to any of the Old Testament characters or anything that the Jews would have been familiar with, but these people would never have known about, would not have been familiar. He doesn't do any of that. But he progressively and systematically goes through these points to get them to understand that this is who he's talking about. Now, you notice these connections he's making with people all through this, this, this speech. And what he's saying is, let me tell you about God who you want to know about. You won't have an altar to an unknown God unless you want to know about God. Some, there's some desire somewhere. So let me tell you about this God that you want to know about. And when you know this creator God, you will realize yourselves that you don't need to make an idol to worship or honor him. You will learn that you can live in relationship with this God, a relationship which you desire as his offspring. And God relates to you according to your own background. He knows where you're from and where you live. He knows what your back, you know, ethnic background and your family background, and he knows all of that. So he's appealing one after the other, one after the other. And he says, the only reason you haven't had a relationship with this God is because you didn't know, you were ignorant of him, but God is not holding that against you. And he says, the wisest thing you can now do is to turn to this God. The wisest thing you can do is to turn to this God. And you can now live according to God's will, which will be of eternal benefit for you. When you can connect with somebody like that, and they start to understand that what you're telling them is for their benefit in this way, that becomes transformational. It's a great example of how to present God, how to start with common revelation, creation, and transition to special revelation, which is about salvation in Jesus, and how to speak about believing in what Jesus did and what he will do. Now, by the way, even though in Luke's summary here in Acts 17, the cross is not explicitly mentioned, Paul must have referred to Jesus' death in order to refer to Jesus' resurrection, because he clearly talks about the resurrection. And you see that Paul's ultimate proof that what he's saying is true is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's his ultimate proof. He says, all these things that I'm telling you, you can know that it is true because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's the point that we'll be coming to next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday. That, that, that clear statement that we know that this is all true because Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? So, there are many people around us who don't know God. There are also many people around us who are genuinely seeking God or are sincerely worshipping the God that they know. That's what they know. Rather than telling them that they are wrong, instead of disproving what they believe. Before we show them from scripture why their religious practices are not correct, we need to connect with them where they are at. What are they looking for? Where are they looking? 
What are the deep heart desires that they have? What are their real and not just felt needs? What are the common or shared truths that we have with them? Before we look for differences, look for commonalities. The points of agreement based on God's revelation, those become stepping stones to present the gospel without compromise. Paul does not compromise the truth of the word of God. He doesn't compromise what is the requirement for repentance and belief in Jesus and living according to God's will. He's not compromising any of those things. But he uses these points of reference as stepping stones to get to present the gospel. When people are truly converted, when they come to know Jesus, when the Holy Spirit is revealing the truth to them, their eyes will be opened to what is different. We can trust God to transform their mindset and their worldview. Now, we typically tend to think of conversions as uh, a deep consciousness of personal sin, followed by a sense of joyful deliverance, liberation, so being set free from that sin. We then have this realization of personal forgiveness through faith in Jesus, and we accept the Lord Jesus. That's sort of what we typically think about. That may be true for many of us, for our own experiences, or that is the prevailing sort of testimony that we hear. But for many people, in our current context, in the world around us right now, where most, I shouldn't say most, many people are non-Christian, or anti-Christian, or post-Christian. They think they know what Christianity is, and they say, I don't want anything to do with it. Right? In that context, change and transformation, conversion, is more gradual. It's not often a one-time thing. And we must reset our expectations of how people undergo this kind of gospel change and how disciples are made. And we have to be open to say, Lord God, you work the process. You do this work in them. I will simply be obedient and faithful to you. So that work of preaching the gospel in context is what is referred to as contextualization. That's when we are presenting and outworking the gospel in a manner that is appropriate to the context in which it is found. Right? So these people are here in these ways, doing these things, believing these things, and we're able to reach them where they're at. So that, that's when the Iranian, or the Indian, or the Indonesian doesn't think of becoming Christian as converting to a Western religion, but rather as being in a genuine relationship in Christ while remaining an Iranian, an Indian, or an Indonesian. And that's important for their context. This is very important, of course, in terms of missionary focus. This is a topic, this is a subject that missionaries are, have struggled with for centuries, continue to struggle with, and continue to sort of pay attention to. What is the extent of contextualization? What should I say to the person? 
that would be relevant for them in their context, but does not compromise the gospel? What do, what, what do I call them to without telling them that they must do things exactly the way that I have done it in, the, in whatever my background is, but without letting them just mix what they're doing with Christianity, syncretism. No, I don't, it's not just to tell them about Jesus and they take Jesus and add it to everything else. How do they understand this? What should I do? This is a question that has been a struggle and a, and a difficult topic for missionaries through the centuries. But it is appropriate for us here and as we go, as the Lord leads us into our mission field, in our local environments, it is appropriate for us to say to every single person that we meet, how can I tell you about Jesus in a way that you will listen? We've got to ask that question. Now, some of you may be familiar with a man named Sadhu Sundar Singh. He was an Indian who came to know the Lord. And I'm going to share with you a few details of his life that is actually from the Christian History Institute. But you can look up information about Sadhu Sundar Singh. There are lots of books, there's a movie. I remember watching the movie as a child, I was fascinated, you know. I mean, just remarkable miracles and stories from his life. But Sadhu Sundar Singh, or Sundar Singh, I should say, it was, it was his name, he was a Sikh. Um, Sundar Singh, and the Sikhs are the folks that wear the turban. They have their hair, they grow out their hair and they put it in the turban. And so Sundar Singh was 15 years old when he decided that the world, though filled with beautiful things, was not enough to satisfy him. And in the absence of God, this wonderful garden of delights was not appealing. And so unsatisfied by Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, and Christian scriptures, he decided that the only thing he could do was just kill himself, age 15. So he prepared to commit suicide in 1904, one night in December 1904. And during that time, he had a vision of Jesus. Jesus actually intervened you know, and dealt directly with him and revealed his love and his, what he had done, his sacrifice. And this revelation brought him peace it also provoked a lot of conflict. His father, a sick man and landholder and leader and so on in Punjab, in the state of Punjab in India, he was considering this a humiliation for the family. And he said, I can't bear to see my son converted to a foreign religion. And it is the untouchables that are going into this religion. How would I ever allow my son to do this? And so, as soon as Sundar Singh made his determination to follow Jesus, uh, he was expelled from his house. Sundar Singh's mother had been a very devout Hindu, or Sikh, I should say. Um, and in her spirituality, in her, what she knew, she paid a lot of attention to these ascetics, these sadhus, these men who would go around wearing these saffron robes and be set apart for this life of devotion to God and would go around preaching or teaching how to live a holy life as such. So that was her experience and what 
he, and what he had been familiar with through his mother. So after he was baptized, he gave away his possessions and he began to wander from village to village, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, but speaking about it in terms of the people would know, and wearing the saffron robes and the turban and so on, as these ascetics would, which is why he came to be called Sadhu Sundar Singh. And in the Indian context that shaped Sundar Singh's or Sadhu Sundar Singh's Christianity, he pointed out these strong parallels of sadhus or holy men renouncing worldly life and seeking ultimate salvation. And he wanted people to understand that the Indian religious culture had much more in common with Christianity than they were led to believe by the missionaries. Because the missionaries couldn't, didn't understand that context, couldn't describe it. But he was able to describe that and to talk about it and to explain to them that this connection between the religious traditions and the, Christ, and the Christian gospel could make a crucial difference. And in one instance, this is one example, some of his Hindu listeners, after hearing from him, said they wanted to be baptized. And they said, at the time of their baptism, they said, we knew all about Christ for the last 20 years from the European missionaries. But it is now that we understand truly or fully that he is the only savior. When Sundar Singh was invited to the West to share his experiences, his message was very simple. He didn't focus on theological assessments of other religions, how to look at you know, all these things. You know, uh, he didn't talk about missionary strategy. He didn't talk about Indian nationalism. He just focused on the universal human need to seek God and God's revelation in Christ. The one thing necessary for those in both the East and the West was to sit in silence at the feet of the Divine Master who was equally hidden and equally accessible to everyone. That was the message that he focused on. So what happens for us? We have to respond to people. We have to respond to this word by being willing to connect with people in their context, where they're at. I'm not saying that you have to understand or know every single philosophy that's out there. You may not know of the Hindu philosopher who said something, as Paul did about the Stoic philosopher, but you can't spend time, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, you can't spend time with your Hindu neighbor, with your Muslim neighbor, with your pagan neighbor, with your colleague, with somebody, and just ask them, what is it that they think about God, about man, about truth? What is, what is it that they think will achieve salvation for them? And help them to see how the message of truth connects to every one of those things that they are desiring for. People have the same universal desires. And when they are able to see that there's a connection to the Bible, they will pay attention. But if you'd start with telling them why they're wrong, why they shouldn't do what they're doing, why they're misguided, they will not listen to you. 
So we have to be prepared. We have to be equipped. We have to say, Lord God, help me to reach people, to connect with people in their context. And then, third week in a row, we apply by praying for opportunities to share the gospel. I was hearing testimonies, even this week, of people encountering somebody that they didn't know. Micah is becoming the parking lot, uh, flat tire helper evangelist. He told me another story of somebody broken down on the side of the road here, pulled into the parking lot, and then they stopped and helped her and shared with her. Praise God. I know others have had some other stories. I was telling somebody else, I was mentioning in the men's meeting, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to somebody who was not a believer, but just completely unexpectedly, in the last one and a half weeks, three different people who I have not heard from one person for about six years, five, six years, another person for about 15 years, two, two other people for about 15 years, suddenly reached out to me. And I was telling, I said, I was telling Jizzy, I didn't say to them, what prompted this? How, why, did you, why did you reach out? But I just said, Lord, I thank you. When we start to pray to connect with people, when we say, Lord, you, you show me who I should talk to, you bring people across my way. You help me to have an apt word in my mouth. You prepare my heart. You help me to love. You help me to forgive. You help me, Lord, to reach out to them as you would want me to do so with your power and your grace. The Lord will answer. The Lord will answer. And so we want to pray. We want to pray and say, Lord God, give me the opportunities to share the gospel maybe with a person who has never heard the gospel, but maybe with somebody who has and needs to hear a word that is refreshing, that is encouraging, that is building up, that causes them to press in harder and, and stronger to the Lord. Pray, ask the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that as we've been talking about conversions over these three weeks, Lord, you have helped us to understand just a little bit we pray that we may continue to press in and listen to you, listen to your Holy Spirit, understand your heart. Father, help us to connect with people. Help us to connect with people in their context, according to what's going on in their lives, and to present the word of God in such an appealing and connected way that they would, they would just desire to know this true and living God, this unknown God, this God that they had some partial knowledge of. Oh, Lord God, help us. Grant us grace. Help us, Lord, to connect. Help us, Lord, to share. Most importantly, help us to love so that many, many people will come into the family of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.